I can say good morning to you all. We are certainly glad to have each and every one of you here in the assembly as we worship God together this morning. I know that we have, as already been said, a number of our family members that are in Tulsa, Oklahoma for the area-wide meeting. And I know that uh, a few of you drove back yesterday. We certainly appreciate that God has granted you a safe travels back home. And we remember those who are up there and pray for their safe return. But I'll say we're especially thankful for visitors that are here this morning. The fact that you chose to rise up this morning and come worship with us here at La Prada. We're thankful for your presence, and we appreciate you being here. We hope that you've been edified in the assembly to this point, and that you'll continue to be as we proclaim God's word. This morning, we will be teaching through the book of Ruth. This is a short four-chapter book of history that is found in the Old Testament. And as I was preparing this lesson, it was my plan to teach through all four chapters in one assembly. But as I continued to prepare and add more and more to it, it would have forced me to rush through the book and skip through some details that I felt were important and not be able to finish in a timely fashion. So I split this lesson into two. So we will cover the first two chapters of this book this morning. And we'll cover the remaining two on August 28th when I speak, adi- speak again on a Sunday morning. So I obviously encourage you to uh, be here on August 28th when we complete the lesson, but also be here each and every time the church assembles to worship God. All the words of the Bible that we are going to be reading today are profitable. Profitable to us. 2 Timothy 3 and 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for which is convincing, rebuking. It's proper for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or completely equipped for every good work. And so as we read the words of Ruth this morning, we will seek to make application for God's word that I believe can help us, that can equip us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. So we've got a lot to cover, so let us jump right into the book. Begin at Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, there's a lot said right here in this first verse that we, I think we need to understand, so we'll take our time to go through this. The time frame, as we see here, is in the day of the judges. Now, if we consider the history of Israel, we can go back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob living in the land that God promised to give to his people. Jacob had 12 sons, and Joseph, one of those sons, was sold by his brothers, and he ended up in Egypt. There, God raised him up so that he could bring his family to Egypt during the famine and preserve their lives. The family remained in Egypt. And after the, after the famine ended, they continued to live there and they continued to grow. And the Bible says that they were there for 400 years. But during that time, they became so numerous that the Pharaoh or the ruler of Egypt determined he didn't trust him. And so he determined to enslave the Israelites so that they would not be in position to join a, a potential attacker that wanted to attack Egypt. 
So through Moses, God delivered the children of Israel from bondage there in Egypt and brought them out and brought them towards the promised land. As we know, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And after the death of Moses, Joshua led the people as they entered into the promised land and took possession of it. And after the death of Joshua, we enter this period that we call the period of the judges. And it is during these days that God would raise up leaders like Samson, Gideon, Deborah, and Samuel to deliver his people from the trials that they faced. This time period, the judges, is characterized by evil, unrighteousness, and wickedness throughout the land. As the final verse of the book of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Wickedness was everywhere as people did as they felt what was right. But that was usually not right in the eyes of God. The first verse spoke of a famine or shortage of food in the entire land. The Bible teaches that God is the ultimate cause of famines. For the law taught that God would bless the land with prosperity when his people faithfully obeyed. But they would suffer when they didn't. The text doesn't say here in Ruth, uh, but knowing the time period and the wickedness of the day, I'd venture to say that this famine is God's judgment on the land. Elimelech, the man spoke of in verse 1. The Bible says he was of the tribe of Judah, and he was a resident of Bethlehem. And he owned land there, which we'll learn about later on. But apparently due to the famine, he was unable to provide for his family. So he... His wife, Naomi, their two sons, Malon and Chilion, left the promised land and they went to Moab. Now, we don't know the exact route that they took to get to Moab, but we know that Moab was settled by the son of Lot's oldest daughter. Moab lived and became the father of the Moabites. And during the days of the judges, the Moabites were enemies of Israel. As they subdued, attacked and subdued Israel for 18 years. But during this period of the judges, God raised up a judge by the name of Ehud, who killed the king of Moab and delivered Israel from the Moabites. After this deliverance, they enjoyed 80 years of peace with Moab. Therefore, I speculate that it is during this time that Elimelech packed up his family and went to Moab during this time of peace. So verse 3 tells us that in the course of time, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, leaving behind Naomi to be a widow in this foreign land with her two sons, Malon and Kilion. Naomi's sons were of age, and the Bible tells us that each of them married a Moabite woman, Orpah and Ruth. And they continued to live in the land of Moab for 10 years. But after the 10 years of marriage, both of Naomi's sons died. And there were no children born in either of these marriages. So if we consider the time, we can understand what a terrible situation these three women are facing. The pain of losing a spouse surely weighs heavy on all three. The hopes, the dreams that they had in living their lives together are no longer possible as each of them has buried a husband. 
But Naomi suffers a bit more as she has had to bury both of her children. The providers of the family are gone, dead and gone. A family without any man or heirs is in a tough situation. The outlook for these widows in life is tough. A life of poverty, a life of hardship. There were no government assistance programs to apply for, to to get a check, to get food. There's no helping hands, no meals on wheels. But special provisions are made in God's law for the vulnerable of society. For example, Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29 prescribes that a tithe be used for taking care of the Levites, the orphans, and the widows. But even with provisions like this, it is easy to understand how hard life can be for these women. However, God's law applied for the people of Israel. But these widows were currently living in Moab. We don't know if these widows fared any better or worse in Moab. At verse 6, we read that Naomi heard that the Lord had visited his people in Judah and the famine back home in Bethlehem had come to an end. So Naomi determined to return home. She determined it was time to get back home. Now, the text doesn't say, but from the context, we understand that she and her two daughters-in-law were all living together. So before leaving Moab, Naomi considered her current situation and the outlook for her daughters. Returning to Israel, these women would be foreigners, outsiders, and they would probably never marry again. Naomi was of an age that she was not likely to marry again, and she would not be able to raise up sons that these two daughters would be able to take in marriage. She knew that her future and the future of these two women would be widowhood, and most likely a hard life. So she told him, I've got nothing for you. I'm old and my days of marrying and childbearing are over. I won't be able to raise up a son for you too. And so she encouraged these two women to return home to their parents. She hoped that perhaps they would be able to marry again and have a better life. She said, may the Lord deal kindly with you, just as you have done for my sons and for me. In verse 13, Naomi grieves because she feels that the hand of the Lord has been against her. Now, this was clearly an emotional goodbye as she's telling these young women to go home. For the Bible says that the women wept aloud. Naomi kissed Orpah, and she left to go. The, but the Bible says the Ruth clung to Naomi, desiring to stay with her. Naomi tried to convince Ruth otherwise, telling her in verse 15, look, Orpah is going back to her people and to her gods. Why don't you do the same? But Ruth responds to Naomi, telling her, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. These beautiful words from Ruth show that she is fully committed to being with her mother-in-law. In the 10 years of marriage, 
and the time spent with her mother-in-law, Ruth has determined that staying with Naomi is the best situation for her. She was under no obligation to stay with Naomi. But perhaps the godly influence of Naomi and the way that Naomi has treated Ruth has served to develop a strong bond that Ruth is unwilling to break. Ruth is unwilling, or she's willing to turn from her own country, to turn from her gods of that country, from her family, from her friends, and all she knows in Moab to go to the unknown that awaits in Israel with Naomi. She even pronounced a curse on herself, saying that if anything but death separated her from Naomi, she deserved it. Her words, the words of Ruth, allow us to grasp the commitment and the loyalty that Ruth is exhibiting towards Naomi, committing to be with her until the very end. Now, what a blessing it is when you can have that kind of influence on others and develop such a strong bond. What a blessing that is. And Naomi realized that Ruth was fully committed to going with her, so she spoke no more about her leaving. The Bible says that they returned to Bethlehem, and the city was all stirred up. Naomi and her family, they had been gone for over 10 years, so you can imagine the excitement that may have been, seeing family, seeing friends that she knew from so long ago. And verse 19 says that the people asked, is this Naomi? Leading me to believe that the effects of the hard life that she has endured in Moab are probably visible for all to see. Naomi, whose name meant to be lovely or pleasant, told the people, don't call me that name anymore. Don't call me Naomi. I'm not the same person I used to be. She says that God has dealt harshly with me. Instead, Call me Mara, which means bitter or bitterness. To Naomi, this is a sad return home. And there's no reason to celebrate or be excited. She left Bethlehem with a husband and two sons, but she has returned home empty. Her words, empty. Now, we can surely understand her bitterness. We can understand her outlook on life and her feelings that God is against her. But what she is saying are her own words about God and about how she sees the situation. This isn't God speaking. Now, while feeling this way, she completely disregards the loyalty of her daughter-in-law who has come home with her. She isn't considering the lifelong commitment that Ruth has made to be with her. As chapter 2 unfolds, we're going to see just a bit of what Ruth does to provide for her aged mother-in-law and the sacrifice that Ruth makes for her. Those weren't empty words that Ruth said. We're going to see the proof of that in chapter 2. Naomi sounds like someone that is bitter, that is discouraged, that is not happy with life as it is. But I'd venture to say that many of us have been in her position before. Like her, we've probably had a devastating blow or a series of devastating blows or bad things to occur in life that cause us to lose hope, to lose our joy, 
to possibly even feel that God's hand is against us. We can understand her bitterness. We can understand that she feels forgotten by God. Surely we can relate. Sometimes, like Naomi, we fail to open our eyes and see the blessings that are around us. But we can learn from her example also. She faced trials in Moab that would have driven many to give up, seeing her husband buried and her two sons. She suffered enough trials to be discouraged and depressed. But upon hearing of God's provisions of food in Bethlehem, she made the journey back home. She's still holding out hope for better things. Her faith has been tried by these trials of fire, but her faith has been proven to be genuine. She's not giving up. And we can be encouraged by Naomi's example as we consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, which speaks of Christians enduring a variety of trials. It speaks of the faith of a Christian that has been proven to be genuine and true. Now, you can say that you have strong faith. You can be in God's word every day. You can know it. You can quote it, have it memorized. But you're not going to know that your faith is really true until it is proven. Until you've been through some trials in your life, until you've endured some things, that proven faith is more valuable than gold. It is those trials, it's those challenges, it's those hard times that are going to prove your faith to be true. And when we remain faithful while we endure and overcome trials, we can know without a doubt that our faith is tested and that our faith is true. So getting on to chapter 2, let's first notice the last part of chapter 1 that says that they returned to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now if we recall, Naomi's family left Bethlehem because of a shortage of food. But the Bible notes that it is the beginning of the barley harvest. Things may have been uh, bleak for these two widows before, but the harvest should have given them just a glimmer of hope. Hope that there is food in the land and that God continues to bless and provide for his people. There is hope. Verse 1, it says, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. We're introduced here to Boaz, a kinsman or a relative of Naomi's husband. The Bible says that he is a mighty man of wealth. And as we read ahead, we'll learn that Boaz owned fields. He had servants that he knew and he treated well. And that he was an older and well-established man. These, these details will matter more as we make our way through the rest of this book. But upon arriving in Bethlehem, Ruth took it upon herself to go. To go out and to find food for she and Naomi. She went to glean ears of corn in the fields. It appears that Naomi has explained to Ruth the law and its provisions for the poor. The law required for those who raised crops that they had to leave the corners of their fields unharvested, untouched, so that the poor or those who were in need or the foreigner could work the land and gather food. The law also permitted the poor to follow up behind the harvesters of the land. 
and to pick up anything that they left behind. So verse 3, we read that, And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to lie on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. So we read here that Ruth went to gather food from the corners of someone's fields, and the Bible says, her hap. Notice there in verse 3, second line. Her hap was to light on a part of the field that belonged to Boaz. Hap is not a word that we use today, but it means fate or chance. The Bible is saying here that by fate, by chance, she just happened to glean in the field that belonged to Boaz, a relative of her father-in-law. Many commentators looked at this and they call it God's providence. Providence, I'll admit, was not part of, is not part of my normal vocabulary. It's one of those big Christian words that's often thrown around but not usually defined. So we're going to try to do that today. The word providence is used one time in the King James Version, and we find it in Acts 24 and 2, and it means foresight. And so when combined to say God's providence, if I'm describing it in my own words, the definition I would say it's God's hand and causing things to happen. Or God moving things in a natural way according to his will, that his will may be accomplished. It was God's hand and his guidance that brought Ruth and Naomi back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest. And it was his guidance and Ruth choosing of all the fields to labor in in Bethlehem, Boaz's field, God's providence. Naomi spoke of her bitterness and how she felt God's hand was against her. But here we see and we understand that that was only her point of view. We see that God's providence as he was putting things in place and providing for Naomi, but she didn't have eyes to see it yet. I said it because God's law made provisions for the poor to glean food. But not everybody obeyed the law. We've already said that these are the days of the judges where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So if that is the case, then by extension, not everyone left food aside for the poor. Not everyone allowed the poor to glean from their fields or their land. Not everyone allowed the poor to take food in that way. Some people reaped their entire harvest and left nothing behind for the poor. Nevertheless, God's providence brought Ruth to Boaz's field. And we see that Boaz did obey the law. And we're, as we're going to read here in a moment, he exceeded the law on Ruth's behalf. As Ruth was gathering in the fields of Boaz, gleaning food, the Bible tells of Boaz coming to greet the harvesters that were working his fields. And he notices Ruth gathering in his field. He notices her and he asks one of his servants about her. Boaz's servant tells of Ruth's background, how she moved back home with her mother-in-law. She was a Moabite. And he tells that Ruth came and she asked for permission to glean in the fields. And he says she's been gleaning all morning except for one short rest break. They're watching. So Boaz approaches Ruth and he says, listen to me, daughter. Kind words he speaks to her. Listen to me. Don't you go and glean in any other fields. Don't leave my fields. Stay here and stay close to the young women of my group that are working in these fields. 
I've spoken to the young men here, and they will not harass you. When you're thirsty, you go over there and you drink some of our water. Man, what an expression of kindness. He didn't have to treat Ruth like this. He's already given her free food, per the law. But he seems even more willing to help her as he sees her diligence. He sees the way she's working. He hears of her character and what she has done for her mother-in-law, her loyalty to her mother-in-law. The Bible says that Ruth recognizes this extraordinary kindness and she fell to the ground to show reverence and respect to Boaz and asked him, why? Why are you doing such a thing to me? Especially to somebody like me, who's a foreigner. The Bible says, and Boaz answered and said unto her, it hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband. And how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of thy nativity and art coming to a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wing thou art come to trust. In Boaz's response, we see that the word about Ruth has been making its way around town. Naomi has clearly shared with others their history together about the kindness of Ruth. Boaz has taken an interest in Ruth, not necessarily a love interest, but an interest in caring for his relative, caring for family, and being generous to those in need. Boaz knows of all that Ruth has done for Naomi and how she has clung to her, even after the death of her own husband, rather than return to her own family in her own homeland. He prayed that God will repay Ruth for the kindness that she has shown. Ruth unbelievably responded to him, letting him know that his words were an encouragement, and she was grateful for his kindness. As the day went on, Boaz continued to show favor towards Ruth. As he allowed her to eat with him and the rest of his harvesters, as they enjoyed a meal together, and after eating with the group, The Bible says that Ruth got right back to work gathering food. Boaz noticed her work ethic. And he told his workers, as you continue to harvest, make sure you leave some barley behind so that she will have an abundance to take home. And he then instructed them, don't give her a hard time. Let her gather in peace. Boaz is going above and beyond what the law demanded. He is trying to ease the burden of Ruth, and he is making arrangements for her protection as she labors in his fields. He earlier prayed that God would reward her for the kindness that she showed to Naomi, and here he is, in position to be a blessing to her, and he is doing just that. As Galatians 6 and 10 says, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. There is no way for Ruth to pay Boaz back. She has little to nothing. She's probably living in poverty. That's why she's here gleaning in these fields, relying on the generosity of others for food. Boaz has the opportunity to do good. And here he is helping family, helping relatives by allowing them to glean. And he's exceeding the demands of the law. May we as individuals, as Christians that live 
in this dark world. May we be as Boaz when we see a need and we do what we can to meet the need. When we are in position to do good to others, may we be a blessing to others. May we do it for we never know the impact it may have in someone's life. The Bible records that Ruth labored in the fields until the evening. And she ended up with an ephah of barley. Now that's a measurement of that day and that time that we don't understand exactly how much it was. One Bible dictionary that I looked at says that one ephah was about eight gallons. So eight gallons of, of, of barley, by, what, by the context of reading, is clearly a lot, as we'll see when she interacts with Naomi. Either way, it was apparently more than you'd expect to gather from gleaning. Because upon seeing it, Naomi asked Ruth, where did you work today? Blessed be whoever took notice of you, implying that you surely are favored because there's no way you would have normally gotten that much from gleaning. But when Ruth revealed to Naomi that she labored in Boaz's field that day, Naomi pronounced a blessing on Boaz for his kindness. Yes, Naomi knew who Boaz was. She knew that he was a relative of her dead husband. And she is thankful for Boaz that he has not forgotten, he has not abandoned his family now that they are in need. And so at the end of this successful day of gathering food, Ruth has more good news to share with Naomi. Boaz told her that she was able to continue to glean in his field with his harvesters for the entire harvest. So Ruth and Naomi not only have food for the next few days, but food for as long as the harvest goes on. So Naomi wisely encouraged Ruth to accept this generous offer from Boaz. Because she knows, she says, if you venture into someone else's field, you might not find such kindness. You might even counter danger, for we know these are the times of the judges where wickedness was prevalent. Who knows what she could run into? So Naomi advised her, stay faithful and continue laboring in the fields of Boaz, the one who's been so good to us. So chapter 2 ends with Ruth and Naomi having food for the remainder of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest as Ruth continues to glean in Boaz's fields. In this chapter, we can't help but see the hand of God as he provides in a mighty way for these two widows. God blessed Boaz to be in position to help, and he allowed those blessings to fall on to Ruth and Naomi. The bitterness that Naomi felt at the end of chapter 1 is surely starting to erode away, perhaps even becoming sweet as we see the hand of God in their lives. And so that brings us to the end of chapter 2 and the end of our reading for today. Unfortunately, we must end on a cliffhanger. Upon their return to Bethlehem, things are getting better for them already. They found a source of food. The wheat and barley season will end, though. What will they do after that? Where will they work then? Will they continue to live off the generosity of others? Will they continue to live in poverty? As a foreigner, is there hope? for Ruth to find a husband. We'll continue to study on August 28th, and I hope that you all are here. As we've read this morning, there are many principles that we can learn from. A number of them we kind of touched on as we read, but we will focus on just one as we get ready to close here, and that is the providence of God. The overarching theme in the book of Daniel 
is that God is over all and that he reigns in the affairs of men. In the book of Daniel, we learn that it is God who lifts up and elevates kingdoms. And it is God who brings kingdoms to an end. We see that in Daniel as God elevated the Babylonian Empire, elevated them and allowed them to punish Judah. We then see God bring an end to the Babylonian Empire and allow them to be overtaken by the Medo-Persian Empire. In the same way, we see God's hand in the affairs of individuals. We see God's hand in the life of Joseph. We see the evil of his brothers that sold him to slave traders and hid the truth from their father. They meant it for evil, but God guided the situation so that Joseph was able to preserve the life of his whole family during the famine. In our reading today, we see God's providence as he allowed things to work together for the good for Naomi and Ruth. We read of the negative situations that drove Naomi and Ruth back to Bethlehem. We read of Naomi being blessed by a loyal daughter-in-law who committed to being with her for life. We read of the two widows that just happened to move back to Bethlehem during the harvest. We read of the law that was already in place providing for food for these two widows, allowing them to glean. We read of Ruth just happening to choose the field of Boaz, a man who obeyed the law and was willing to permit Ruth to glean. And we read of Boaz just happening to be there at the time to notice Ruth and continue to be a blessing to her. And as we continue to read through the rest of this book, we will see more examples of God's providence. God's hand in the lives of these women. Not all things that they faced were good. These women lost their husbands. And with that, they lost the security that came in marriage. Surely that alone brought a lot of stress, a lot of heartache, mourning, and tears. But God's hand was there working all of it for his purpose. In the same way, when we face good and bad, sunshine and rain, triumphs and tragedies in our own lives, God is not there to shield us from pain. He is not there to prevent us from facing hard times and difficulties. He has equipped us with all we need to face the ups and downs of life. We must be faithful and trust in his providence as he works all those things for his will and purpose. Romans 8 and 28 says, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. This verse did not say that all things will always be good, but that all things will work together for good. As I said before, some things in life are going to be good. Some things in life are going to be bad. Some of those bad things will be because of our own sin. Some of them will be because of time and chance. Some of them may be trials that God is allowing for us to be refined. No matter the case, for the faithful, God will allow all of them to work together for good and his will. So look into the example of Naomi and Ruth this morning. May we find the strength to trust God even when we are facing difficult trials 
Because in our trials, that's really probably the hardest time to trust God and to remain faithful. But may we trust that God's hand is at work, guiding all things to work together for good. May we learn to trust God's providence as he operates in our lives today. So as we come to a close, today we've had a chance to talk about God's providence, God's hand in our lives, God's hand in moving things to to accomplish his will. If you're not a Christian, his overall will for your life is that you will come to repentance. 2 Peter 3 and 9 tells us that. That God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we encourage you to choose to become a child of God today. We are ready to teach you all that you need to know if you are willing to take that first step forward to come forward. We are ready to study with you and help you understand all that God requires of you if you only take that first step this morning. And for those of you who are already Christians, his will is that you will be faithful unto death. And we hope that we will encourage you in doing that. If there's a request that you may have at the church, you can certainly make that known as we stand and sing the song that has been selected. Free from the burden of sin, there's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you were evil, Lord.